you got your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, and then Ephesians chapter 2. Acts chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 2. As you're flipping that direction, kind of in the same vein of what we talked about with sports just a minute ago, uh, our, our study today starts with this question. Have you ever been super proud of a group you're a part of? Okay, have you ever been super proud of a group you're a part of? First time I can remember really feeling that way uh, was when I got my letter jacket uh, my junior year in high school. Got my letter jacket playing jacket side linebacker and fullback uh, were the positions that I played, and uh, they gave us our jackets, and it was kind of warm weather when that happened, and I can remember that big wool jacket wearing it where it was 90 degrees in West Texas heat outside, and I remember wearing that jacket, sweating like a pig. I was just so happy to be wearing that letter jacket, and it wasn't just me. It was every one of us that got our letter jacket that day. We were just so proud. We would wear the team colors in the summertime in a wool jacket. Uh, Again, we were just so proud proud to be a part of that group. There's scarcely a week that goes by out here that when I tell someone I pastor Waterfront Church, they don't immediately go, y'all are the night to shine church, right? And I'll say yes. And again, I'm so proud that to get to be associated uh, with night to shine and know you guys are too. Uh, but again, super proud to be a part of that group. I'll tell you, if Red Lobster made t-shirts, I'd wear them. You know what I mean? Uh, I'd be very, very proud to be affiliated with them in any capacity. Uh, and then I can remember this I can remember uh, after I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was at the South Plains Mall in Lubbock, Texas, and there was a James Avery store there. You remember James Avery? And uh, James Avery had a cross necklace, and I went and got that cross necklace. I was so proud to be a Christian. I remember I wore that cross necklace everywhere. I didn't take it off for years, which for a junior high boy is not a great idea to wear something for years and years. But I'm telling you, it was just so special to get to have that. And again, I was so proud to be a part of our faith and uh, again, didn't care who knew about it. It's a whole lot easier to walk in boldness when we're proud of what the Lord is doing around us. And that especially goes for the church that you're a part of. Our goal is not that we would bend our knee to the culture, but that we would have the pulse of the culture and then hold uh, to the power of the message of Jesus Christ. The message, remember, we're married to the message, and the methods can change over time. Uh, Our church, we strive to be like the early church in Acts chapter 4. And I'd like to read to you real quick, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and we're going to read the last verse that we read last week as the lead-in for what was taking place in the church at this time. It was a place where the early church believers were very proud to be a part of this fellowship. Here's what it says in verse 31. It says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Underline, spoke the word of God with boldness. What we have is a description here of the early church. is after their prayer meeting, this specific prayer meeting, where again, the uh, testimonies of faith were given from Peter and John, and also from the man who had been healed healed after being born uh, lame. They have this moment where they gather together. Again, they celebrate what God has done. And in the place where they have been, it's different. It's shaken in the name of Jesus Christ. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they didn't just uh, say that they enjoyed the church they were a part of and the God that they served. They boldly proclaimed it because it was so easy to make that jump and that transition. The Spirit had filled them with power. If you're taking notes, write this down. The church is meant to be an accurate and excellent representation of Christ in the midst of a broken world. Let me say that again. The church is meant to be an accurate and excellent representation of 
Christ in the midst of a broken world. We hope that this church can be a place that you are proud to be associated with. Not that we agree with every teeny tiny thing that you agree with, but that honestly, we do our gut level best to put Christ as the center, to put scripture in the limelight in the forefront, and that we do our best to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's the goal, is that you could be proud of what takes place here at Waterfront Church. When we are filled with boldness, it enables the spirit to move in ways that are so powerful because the church is not the building. The church is not even the organization. The church is the people of God as we celebrate Jesus Christ. Had a crazy moment happen on Friday. Um, every now and again, I get asked to go and pray at the Capitol building, and uh, I'm the fill-in because we're so close. I get to do fill-in work. Usually they give me a few days' notice and get to go up and to, and to pray, and this time was particularly crazy because uh, Speaker Pelosi was there. Usually when you go and pray at the pro forma sessions, which are the ones that they let me go pray at, uh, usually it's a staffer or another member of Congress that's overseeing, but uh, this week, Speaker Pelosi walked in probably negotiating the stimulus package, but she walks in and, and is up there for the moment. It was a really cool day, but the moment that happened leading up to uh, what took place at the Capitol was what was so special. It was spirit-filled and a moment of boldness. So usually before I go to pray, this is the fourth time I've gotten to do this, I get out of my office right over here, and I walk up New Jersey Avenue. Instead of riding up, I walk up so that I can kind of get my head right, remember things, and, and, uh, and again, just begin to pray and seek the Lord before I get up there. So I'm walking up New Jersey Avenue, and this was crazy. About halfway up New Jersey Avenue, I feel the Holy Spirit's kick to turn in my Bible that I'm carrying with me to Isaiah chapter 57. Now, here's why this is weird. Guys, I study a lot of scripture. I don't know every chapter, what every chapter's about. And so I had not read Isaiah 57 in I don't know how long. I couldn't even remember the last time I read Isaiah 57. I can give you kind of a general idea, but I didn't know exactly what it was. But I'm walking up the hill, and I feel the Spirit say, turn to Isaiah 57. So while I'm walking, I flip over, and here's what I find. Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2. It says, the righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest even as they lie in death. So that's weird, right? So I'm reading this passage while I'm walking to pray at the Capitol, and I'm sitting there going, this is about a devout person of God who passes away, and they've been spared the evil of the world around them. Not only that, it says that they lie in peace. And I'm like, okay, what an interesting thing to read. In fact, my dad, remember, prayed at the Capitol two weeks before he passed away. So my thoughts went to him, and I thought, okay, maybe the Lord wants me to remember my... I get to the front door, and or the, the, the south door, and when I get to the south door, um, there waiting for me is uh, the secretary for uh, Father Conroy's office. And uh, a wonderful uh, woman of God named Karen... And uh, see Karen say, hey, how you doing? I uh, hope everything's going well. And she goes, you know, she goes, it's been really busy around here. And she said, actually, she said, my father passed away just a few weeks ago. She said, it's still very fresh and we're still working through it. And I said, did you get a chance to say goodbye to him? She said, it was tough. She said, he got an illness and he was 86. She said, 36 hours was all he had. She said, we, we didn't really know. It was so sudden. We didn't know that what was going on in his body was taking place. So I looked at her and I go, this is gonna sound so weird. I was walking up the hill to come here and I had taken my little tassel 
and I had put it at Psalm or at uh, at Isaiah 57. And I said, "You're not going to believe this, but this is the verse that God gave me walking up the hill that the righteous are often spared the evil of the world." I said, "Not only that, but they are able to lie in peace." And she put her hand over her heart and she said, "That was for me today, pastor." That was truth. It was this beautiful, just again, crazy Holy Spirit moment. When the church says yes to God in the small things, then God provides a boldness to you. Do you think I normally would just walk up on the street and be like, hey, I don't know you, but here's a passage of scripture God gave for you. No, but after walking with the Lord, saying yes to him along the way, all of a sudden, telling somebody about a passage of scripture that you read, walking up New Jersey Avenue on the way to the Capitol, doesn't seem so crazy. And then the Lord is able to do things, and we had she said at that point, she goes, we just had a Holy Spirit moment right here within the walls of the Capitol. Now listen, when it came to the early church, they were so proud, the early church believers were so proud to be associated with this movement that God was doing. And there were some attributes of that spirit-filled early church that we need to do our gut level best to reproduce in our congregation today. Are you ready? If you're taking notes, our big million dollar question, what are the attributes of a bold, Holy Spirit-filled church? Let me ask that again. What are the attributes of a bold, Holy Spirit-filled church. We're about to read about it in the verses to follow, starting in Acts chapter 4, and now let's jump in to verse 32. Here's what it says next. It says, all of the believers were one in heart and mind. Underline one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. Stop right there for just a minute. Notice that it says right off the bat that all of the believers had a oneness about them in mind and then also in heart. Mind, of course, is the seat of your intellect, your heart, the seat of your emotions, and when the two work together again, the fabric of our being is our soul, is our spirit. If you're taking notes, write this down. What are the attributes of a bold, Holy Spirit-filled church, number one, is oneness of spirit. Oneness of spirit. Now, I want you to notice something. Oneness of spirit does not mean that they were robots, okay? Oneness of spirit. Sometimes when I was a, a first a believer in Jesus Christ, I remember reading about, uh, again, what we would do in heaven, crying out to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I began to see it this way, like, whoa, when we get to heaven, are we like all going to be robots, saying the same thing, acting the same way? Because we'd all be perfect, right? Does that mean that we'll all be doing the same thing, all acting the same way? No, here's the picture. Tony Evans says it this way, powerful word. He says... In Christ, we have oneness of purpose and not sameness of being. Let me say that again. Quote by Dr. Tony Evans. In Christ, we have oneness of purpose and not sameness of being. You know what that means? That means when you get to heaven, we are perfect in Jesus Christ, and you will not only be yourself, but the perfect and most holy version of yourself when you get to heaven. God crafted you to specifically be you. When we get to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, there is perfection that we've achieved through his shed blood. But we are not going to be robots. You get to be you, and what a beautiful thing that is. The church is not meant to be a factory where we turn out people who dress and look the same way as soon as we walk out the door. The goal is that you would be the most perfect and holy version of who God made you to be. Autumn, back in the day, my wife got to go to a recording of a famous preacher named Beth Moore. 
And uh, Beth Moore was recording in Baltimore. And Autumn tells this story. She was uh, in college at the time. And uh, uh, she said, you know, I asked her what the experience was like. She goes, it was awesome. She goes, I love getting to watch the videos and do the studies with our church. But she said, going for the recording was a different animal. I said, what do you mean? She goes, there were some groupies there. I said, what do you mean groupies? She said, night one, Beth Moore had said in passing, I mean, just like I would in the service about Red Lobster, she says in passing that her favorite color is pink just makes that statement. Autumn said the next day, half the group was wearing pink. She said it was crazy. It just been mentioned in passing. And then all of a sudden, it was robotic, right? The goal of the church is not that I would say, man, I love the color pink. And you guys will all be like, pastor loves pink. Better get pink. God must love pink, right? The picture there is that you get to be you in the most holy and pure form that God created you to be. In Christ, we have oneness of purpose and not sameness of being. We're doing this oneness embrace study on Sunday nights, and it was awesome, uh, including our kiddos. We had 54 that were there for this experience this last Sunday night. And uh, one of the things that Tony Evans says, he talks about, again, racial reconciliation in the church, and he says what you have is oil and water. He said, of all different kinds of separation in our churches across the country and across the world, you come into it with your background, you come into it with your experiences, with your positives, with your negatives, with your understanding of Scripture or your deficiency in Scripture, and you try to put oil and water together. And it doesn't matter how much you stir up oil and water, eventually they will always drift and separate. He said, our God is in the business of making mayonnaise. This is the example Dr. Tony Evans gives. He says, how do you get oil and water to come together? He says, eggs are the great emulsifier that create mayonnaise. And his famous line is, and I love me some mayonnaise. I do too. I put it on everything. Love mayonnaise. All that to say, you take eggs. Eggs is the emulsifier that when put together with oil and water, all of a sudden allows it to become something new as it comes together. In the same way, Jesus Christ is the great emulsifier. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter where you grew up or who raised you. It doesn't matter what part of the country you're from or part of the world you're from. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. You add Jesus Christ to the mix, and then we are one. Amen? When we do that, that's what the church is supposed to look like. A bold, Holy Spirit-filled, Christ-centered church is one in Jesus Christ. And Paul writes about that powerfully in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Flip with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Paul says it so much more eloquently than I just did. He says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. We were once separated from one another, but he brings us near through the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this body, one body, or and in this, one body to reconcile both, uh, both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. What God does for us in Jesus Christ is he is the great emulsifier to bring us together, things that by nature want to separate and go in different directions, to be at odds with one another. In Jesus Christ, we are one, made to be something new. It's the reason why there can be laws to help, there can be organizations to help, 
But the only answer for unity in our culture is Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. God is to change us from the inside out and listen, make us something new together. That's what happens as the church. He makes us something new together. It begs the question, are you able to see the church as a family? Are you able to see the church as a family? You ever gotten into a fight with your family before? I mean, that's all of us, right? You ever gotten in a fight with your family before? Someone who, again, you're related to, you're connected to, you grew up with? And I'm telling you, they just are acting the fool. You ever had that happen? And then here's what happens. You go and you talk to somebody else and you go, man, my relative's driving me nuts. Man, they are driving me crazy. Have you ever said this to somebody? Man, they're driving me crazy. And they look at you and they go, man, they are crazy. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can talk about my crazy family, but who are you to talk about my crazy family? Can I tell you why we feel that way? Because we are one. Because at the common root, blood is thicker than water. At the common root, I mean, you are connected to these people through thick and thin, whether you like it or not, and your common denominator at the root is something that keeps you together. It keeps you connected. In Jesus Christ, the church should be the same way, that even though we disagree politically, That even though we disagree on stuff that happens in our community, that even though we disagree on things, when we walk in this room, when we walk through our community, that we are one in Jesus Christ because that's what matters most. Amen? That's who we have to be. It's the attribute of a bold, Holy Spirit-filled church. It says there, again, in Acts chapter 4, they were all one in heart and in mind. It doesn't mean they were robots. It doesn't mean they came at everything from the same angle. But it means that when it all boiled down to it, ain't nobody talking about my mama. When it comes down to it, nobody's talking about my brother or sister in Christ. We defend each other viciously because we are one. Now look with me, if you will, at Acts chapter 4, verse 33. Here's what it says next. They shared everything they had. It says, with great power, underline great power, The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection. Underline continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And much grace was upon them all. Stop right there for just a minute. This is a powerful center to the way a Christ-centered church, spirit-filled. Christ is always the center. If you're taking notes, write this down. What are the attributes of a bold, Holy Spirit-filled church? Number one is oneness of spirit. And number two is Christ as the constant center. Christ is the constant center. A church that you can be proud of is a church that centers everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it says right here in this passage that they didn't just testify, but they testified to the resurrection. Can I tell you why that's important? Because the Sadducees would look at them and the Sadducees would go, look, we get that you have a difference of theology, but can you just stop talking about the resurrection of the dead? Can you just tone that part down a little bit? And then you'll have the backing of half the religious group that's standing against you. Can't you just come to our will just a little bit and what happens they come back and they go what are you talking about Paul himself says if Christ has not been raised how in the world are we going to be discount the resurrection that's the only reason that we have any hope because Christ was raised from the dead they did not compromise on the truth of who Jesus was if you're taking notes write this down no matter how meaningful the motives 
or dire the societal circumstances. A church that abandons the cross is a church void of the Spirit's power. Let me say that again with some gusto. No matter how meaningful the motives or dire the societal circumstances, a church that abandons the cross is a church void of the Spirit's power. The cross loses its power when we don't keep the focus on Jesus. It's the reason we can be involved in all these things happening in our community, but we've said it over and over again. We are married to the message and not the methods. The methods can change as the culture changes, but the message of Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now listen, I want to share an example with you. I've been reading a really cool book called The Preacher and the Presidents on the life of Billy Graham because it crosses paths with Washington um, and it's been very applicable to get to read. Billy tells this story. He was going through a time where he met another evangelist named Charles Templeton. And when Billy met Charles Templeton, they both started off in the same evangelistic circles. But Templeton began to be taken hold of by the culture and all of a sudden he began to drift away and he tried to take Billy Graham with him. This is at the very beginning of Billy Graham's ministry. He looks at him and says, how can you continue to believe that the Bible is true? And then here's what Billy Graham says. He says, when I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as God's word, I have power, he explained. When I stand before the people and say God says or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. There are results. People respond. Wiser men than you or I have been arguing questions like this for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of each theological dispute, so I've decided once and for all to stop questioning and to accept the Bible as God's word. Over time, Templeton still begins to go after him. And here's what it says next at the conference center that they were at. Templeton confronted Billy Graham with growing theological rifts. And he leveled charges that would follow Billy Graham for years to come. Billy, you're 50 years out of date, he said. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way that you do. Your faith is too simple. Your language is out of date. You're going to have to learn the new jargon if you're going to be successful in your ministry. What followed was an event that became so central to Billy Graham's life and ministry that a plaque on the grounds in North Carolina marks the spot where it happened. As he often did when he couldn't sleep and his mind was burning, he went for a walk and wound up in the woods near the retreat center. He opened up the Bible on a tree stump and prayed in the moonlight. There was too much in there he couldn't understand. Confusion, contradiction, and mystery. And finally, he felt the Spirit release him to say, Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. Remember that. We accept God's word by faith. It says he recalled feeling God's presence as he hadn't in months. He sensed that the spiritual battle had been fought and won in years to come when Winston Churchill asked him about heaven or Eisenhower about salvation or Johnson about sin and damnation. He could answer them with a kind of certainty that made men in authority sit back and listen. He was the messenger. He was not scripting the message. And his power was perfect so long as he did not embellish or interpret the word that he had been given to transmit. What we find there in the story of Billy Graham is even the great prophet of our generation had people chipping away at him, man, like chipping away at a boulder and our faith going, look, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. But when I study your word, there are pieces that I struggle to understand. There's contradictions because my, my sight is limited in this moment. I don't understand it at this time when someone asks you a question and tries to chip away at your faith. Billy Graham says, at that point, I remember the way that I received God's word. You receive it by faith. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
I wish I could tell you that it always all fell into place immediately. But God requires faith in order for us to please him. The answers are in scripture. We have to trust sometimes when we can't see it in the moment that in time God will reveal his truth and his will. If we can't do that, then we, just, we get hijacked by the culture. And then the cross loses its power. My biggest fear for Waterfront Church, it's most pastors' fear when they start a church. But Revelation chapter two, save your spot there in Acts and flip over to Revelation chapter two. Revelation 2 is a church that does a whole lot of good stuff, but they end up losing Christ as their center. Here's what it says. This is Jesus, by the way, speaking. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Now stop there for just a minute. This is the same Ephesus that in Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes to with such gusto that Christ is the unifying agent, that his death, burial, and resurrection are what hold us together. This same church that received that powerful teaching that we still teach today, look at what's said of them. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate the wicked, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Stop right there for just a minute. If that's where this part of the passage ends, that's exactly what I hope they would say about our church, that we persevere and that we do what's right, that we do not tolerate wickedness, that our hard work and our perseverance, that our endurance through hardship for the name of Jesus Christ, and we don't grow weary of it. We continue to fight forward. But verse four, look at what happens. It says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Underline, you've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Stop right there for just a minute. The charge here from Jesus Christ himself is this. Even though you do good things, even though you're involved in the community, even though you stand for the right causes, he says if you don't remember that all of this was through salvation that you received through me, that you don't believe that all of this was so the lost and broken world could hear the gospel message. He says, if you don't believe that the words of scripture are true, he says, I will remove your lamp from its lampstand. You will no longer be able to provide light in your community. I could give you a thousand examples of this churches that this has happened to. The culture sits and says, just give up a little just give up a little. Just come with us. And can I tell you the saddest part of all of it? It's usually to reach more people that we give up the foundation of our faith, the heart of who we are. Billy Graham says it, when I speak for him, I have power. And when I try to go my own way, he removes our lamp from the lampstand. It begs the question, have you allowed a cause to replace your savior. Have you allowed a cause to replace your savior? This is a timely question in the city we live in where there is a new cause that comes to town every day. It's just how it works. This place is the megaphone. 
And so it's not that bigger things happen here. You're just closer to the megaphone. And you can be heard a little bit more if you're here. Our, our country was built that way. Remember, have you allowed a cause to replace your Savior? Endure hardship. Stand against the wicked. But he says, if you forget your first love, the reason that we do these things, our relationship with Jesus Christ, he said, I'm going to put out your light. Now flip back over to Acts chapter 4. That really is my nightmare. Flip back over to Acts chapter 4. And now let's look at verses 34 through 37. So again, we started off, uh, what are the attributes of a bold, Holy Spirit-filled church? Oneness of spirit. Number two, Christ, the constant center. And now we'll find our third thing. Look at this in 34 through 37. It says, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, underline from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and they brought the money and they put it at the apostles' feet. Underline, put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money to put it at the apostles' feet. Stop right there for just a minute. Such a cool story about a bold, Christ-centered church, Holy Spirit-filled church right here at the end. If you're taking notes, number three, Again, what are the attributes of a bold, Holy Spirit-filled church? Number three is selfless, sacrificial giving. Selfless, sacrificial giving. What we have here is a group of people who are not owners of God's blessing, but managers of what God has given them so that they can share it with those who are in need around them. I want you to notice that it says that they didn't just give, it says they gave from time to time. This is above and beyond a tithe that you give to the church. This is a sacrificial gift you give because of the, the, uh, the work that we're doing, the ministry that we're doing all throughout the city. Sometimes this is loaning money to somebody when you know you're not going to get it back. Sometimes it's helping out a family member. Sometimes it's helping out a church. Sometimes it's helping out another community entity. But a moment where you say, look, from time to time, I'm going to do sacrificially above and beyond what it is that I've done in the past. Now, by the way, you can write this down if you want to. It's not in your notes. This is not faith in the institution, but it's no strings attached. That's the idea of laying something at the apostles' feet. It's not going, all right, church, here's the money, and I don't care how you spend it. The picture is that you say, the Holy Spirit has told me to give this, and I lay it at the apostles' feet. It is for you to use. It is for God to take and to do with what he pleases, and even though I'm involved in the process, I am not attaching strings to the gift the Holy Spirit has called me to give. Now, this is always the point where someone goes in their heart, I hadn't been to church in years, and I just knew the preacher was going to ask for money today, all right? Can I tell you a secret? We work through the passages from top to bottom. If that's the Holy Spirit's conviction on your life, that ain't my problem. I apologize. That's the Spirit speaking to you the same way he did with me walking up New Jersey Avenue on Friday. Spirit speaking to you, and that's not me trying to harp on you. Go back to the videotape. I don't beat you up for money every week. It's just the way it works. Sacrificial, selfless gifts are powerful things in the hands of Almighty God. If you're taking notes, write this down. There is a meaningful connection between your grip on your resources and the health of your spirit. Let me say that again. There is a meaningful connection between your grip on your resources and the health of your spirit. Are you a manager or an owner of the blessings that God has bestowed upon you? I love that Barnabas is named here at the end. Did you know Barnabas' name was actually Joseph? 
Can I tell you why that's kind of funny? So back in the day, Mary and Joseph, one of the beautiful parts of the Christmas story, they were the two most common names. And so there were a whole lot of Joes and there were a whole lot of Marys. And so it was not uncommon for a Joe to receive a nickname. And this Joseph, because of the way he lived his life, the nickname he's given was Barnabas. Barnabas meant son of encouragement. Can you imagine if you walked in the room and everybody just, instead of Mike, went, oh, there's encourager. There he is, oh, son of encouragement, right? It's a family trait. It's been passed down to him, and I'm sure he'll pass it down to his kids too. There's old son of encouragement that walked in there, Barnabas. I mean, that's one of the highest compliments you could receive. Barnabas is the one that would go and find the apostle Paul. The reason we as Gentiles in this room, uh, if you weren't born of Jewish descent, the reason we Gentiles are in the club today is because of the work that God did through this Barnabas who started his journey, his sacrificial journey of discipleship through this moment of giving what he had so that God could use it, laying it at the apostles' feet. The picture here is so powerful. Learning to give before being deployed to the mission is a step in the process of discipleship. We've got to trust God with the blessings that he's given us because we realize they didn't belong to us. God gave them, and he means for us to use them. At the beginning of the pandemic, we had a pretty crazy moment happen. Um, like many of you, we were very scared in the beginning. Um, we'd been taking steps of faith, and even the building that we're meeting in right now, it was a step of faith for us to, uh, to take this on, and the Lord is blessed in dramatic fashion. But y'all remember back to March. That March-April stretch was pretty scary. We didn't know what was ahead. We knew that everything was being shut down, and we just didn't know what it was going to look like moving forward. And I called a friend of mine. It was on a dark day. I was just so sad. I felt like it was just going to be a couple of weeks and then we'd be back together, right? And then all of a sudden, I can remember, I called a friend of mine. I was having a dark day, kind of down in the dumps that our church wasn't able to gather. And I remember I called my friend. He's a church planter in the Midwest. And I just said to him, I said, tell me something good. I said, I need to know something good that the Lord's done in your life. I said, that'll give me strength and courage. It'll encourage me to keep moving forward. And he goes, we made payroll this month. I said, that is encouraging. I said, when did you make payroll? He said, on the 30th. I said, you made payroll the day before you're supposed to pay your employees? He said, yeah, God is good. And I said, bro, how close are y'all cutting it right now? He said, we made payroll. And I said, you keep saying that. I said, that's it? And then he got emotional and he said, God's taking care of us. He's going to take care of me and my employees. And at that point, I felt the Holy Spirit tug that I needed to make a call and see if we could help them with two weeks of wages. Now, just for the record, because it was the Midwest, it was not that expensive. But still for us during that time, it was a very, very sacrificial gift. So I called our board and said, I think we're supposed to do this. And each one unanimously said, are you kidding? Of course we should do it. And I'm sitting there like, why am I having a bigger problem with this than you guys are? You know, than you people are. End of the story is I call my friend, tell him we'd like to give them two weeks so that they can already make payroll. He starts to cry on the other end of the phone. He said, you have no idea what this means to us. He said, I'm going to tell our people. I said, no, no, we don't want credit. He goes, no, no, let me tell them so they can see how the Lord is fighting for us. 
He announced it to their people. A month later, when he and I talked, he said, you're not gonna believe this. We have a month's operating in reserve. When the people heard of the sacrificial gift that a random church in D.C. had given to them, the people stepped up and stood up for their church. I talked to him not too long ago, and he said, you're not gonna believe this, but it's even multiplied since then what the people have stepped forward and helped with so that now we're not worried about making payroll month to month. Now listen, if the Lord calls for you to give it, then let go that kung fu grip that you've got on whatever that blessing is. As long as you hold on to it, God can't put anything else in that hand. If he's called you to let it go, then let it go. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that you're flippant. What did it say in scripture? From time to time. From time to time. When he calls you to let go of that thing that you hold on to so preciously, when you let it go, it frees God to do something powerful. And the story must be told. It begs the final question today. How long has it been since you sacrificially gave? How long has it been since you sacrificially gave? A Holy Spirit-filled, bold church is one in Christ with him always the center, but we also are managers and not owners of the blessing God has given us. I love you guys. Thanks for listening today. Always tough for a preacher when you end on a giving piece, but it's the way the Lord led it today. I want to encourage you. Don't tune out the most important part of the service these next few moments. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection. There's nothing mystical or magical about this time. Just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different because of the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anyone here today that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I think I've been trying to make our church all oil or all water, and it's time I allow the Lord to make us one, to make us some mayonnaise. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me, pray I would see the church as a family and that I would see Christ as our lifeblood, what truly binds us together. You're still you who God created you to be, but the most important defining characteristic, the family attribute, is that Jesus is our Lord, that scripture is our supreme authority. With nobody looking but just me, if that's you, I just wanna pray for you. If you would just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful, that's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down, thank you. That took courage. I'm gonna pray for you. But if that was you, I want to encourage you, just pray that simple prayer. God, make Christ the center. God, make Christ the center. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me in the same way that Billy Graham, when he was tempted to go along with the culture, said, Lord, I receive your word by faith even when I don't understand how it all comes together in the moment, I trust that you are who you claim to be. I trust that your word is true because it's the word I trust for salvation. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me, pray that I would receive God's word as truth by faith. 
If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. It's powerful. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. Especially in this city, it takes a lot of guts. For Billy Graham, that was the turning point of his whole ministry. I'm going to pray for you that today it would truly be the turning point in your spiritual journey as well. If that was you, I'll pray for you. But just pray that simple prayer, same as Billy Graham. Lord, I receive your word today by faith. Zach, would you pray for me? The Holy Spirit is tugging on my heart that today is the day that I need to sacrificially give. Maybe to the church, maybe to someone in your community, maybe to a relative that you know is not going to give you the money back, but God's calling you to give it anyway. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you say, Zach, pray for me, pray that I would have the courage to say yes to the Spirit and sacrificially give. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. That's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down. That takes guts. I'm going to pray for you, but your prayer is very simple. Lord, help me to release what you've called for. Lord, help me to release what you've called for. And if you're like me, I got to do it quickly. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you so much for the chance to study your word. And God, I pray that the church that's outlined in Acts chapter 4 would be the church that we most resemble. Lord, I pray against Revelation chapter 2. I pray that we would not be the church that works hard, that's known for our endurance, that's known for our love for our community, but that we forgot our first love and lost our light. In the name of Jesus Christ, I beg you, let us be the church in Acts 4. God, I pray for those who are here today who need to see the church as a family. Again, Lord, you have made them uniquely them. But Lord, without you as the center, we will always drift apart. Lord, I pray that you would make us something new. Let us be the church of mayonnaise. When people look at us, they see so many differences and yet unity and oneness in our relationship with you and our adherence to scripture. Lord, I also pray for those who are here today, Lord, that are claiming that your word by faith is truth. Lord, I pray that you would give them again just a double portion of courage today. And Lord, that as they cling to your word, even before they fully understand it, I pray that you would bless them like no other. And God, for those called to selflessly, sacrificially give today, Give them courage to let go of what you've called for. And then, Lord, I pray that you would bless them like no other as they move forward into the future because they are managers of your greatness and not owners. I love you, Lord. I love our church. I'm so proud to be pastor here. God, this is one of those lessons that we have to get. We have to get it. Otherwise, when I go... Otherwise, one day when Isaiah 57 happens for me, Lord, I gotta know that this place is on a firm foundation. I pray that it would be many, many decades from now. But Lord, I pray that that would always be said of our church, that we do not forsake our first love, that we cling to you with all we've got. And Lord, I pray that when people look at our church, they would see Christ the center of, 
that they would see selflessness and sacrificial giving. And Lord, that we truly might be a place that is one in you. I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.